Thank you. Okay, so uh, we're going to uh, do some introductions. We have some new staff here that I uh, just want to make sure you know their names so when you start seeing them on the email. Uh, we'll do a brief EMAC overview. Uh, Alicia is going to go over the IGA process. And probably today or tomorrow, we'll send out to all the regional coordinators uh, a list of IGA expiration dates. Uh, that way, you'll know if your department's coming due and you need to, to submit some new documents so you're ready for the upcoming season. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the mobilization process, although most of you are very familiar with that. And then we'll go into the reimbursement process. I'll share the new workbook on the screen, and then I'll go through that a little bit. And then I've booked eight hours to answer any questions that come up. Uh, so feel free to ask anything that you think would be applicable to you or that anybody else would want to see. Uh, introductions. Uh, most of you know Mark Douglas. He's our uh, supervisor. He's been doing this for a long time. Uh, he's got a good working relationship with the fire community. Uh, he'll be on this call a little bit later. Uh, he's our overall supervisor in charge. Uh, Leisha Osborne, who most of you have worked with through the reimbursement process, is the logistics coordinator and an EMAC designated contact. You might start seeing some emails from Greg Glinsky. Uh, we've brought him on for the next year or so to help us with the workload, hopefully make him permanent after that. Uh, he's a 20-year military retired veteran uh, coming to us from the military police, uh, a little bit of first responder experience. Uh, so he's bringing a lot to the table. Uh, lastly, myself, uh, Adam Mulvey. I'm also an EMAC designated contact. I've been at EMD, the Emergency Military Department, for about uh, two years, and I'm a 20-year military retired veteran prior to that, uh, so I'm able to help in any way that uh, you need. EMAC overview. Uh, the EMAC overview process, EMAC is a reimbursement process for mutual aid that takes place outside of the state. I want to start with a disclaimer that uh, we know there's all sorts of mutual aid compacts out there. There's WAMAS, Panema. There might be mobilizations through DNR, through WSP, and other systems. Everything I'm going to go over today only deals with EMAC and out-of-state deployments. You know, if your department happens to go on an EMAC deployment and you submit your paperwork and reimbursement through DNR or WSP, uh, they're not going to be the appropriate ones to handle it. They have different requirements, and uh, they shouldn't uh, pay you by accident. But if they do, it's going to slow down the process. So if it's an EMAC mission, everything comes directly to us here at uh, OEM EMD. Uh, we handle everything EMAC and pretty much everything out-of-state. EMAC is mutual aid. It enables states to share resources. It's state to state. Uh, so it's not local county to local county. You may have uh, mutual aid agreements for everyone that's bordering with Oregon. You may have internal agreements. This doesn't replace or get in the way of any of that. This is state to state resources to include everything from natural, man-made, uh, including terrorism. EMAC is the mechanism that allows states to do that uh, fairly legally and make sure there's grounds for everyone to be covered and get reimbursed. EMAC was signed into law in 1996. All 50 states, all the territories are a party to it. Uh, EMAC is set up so that we can share resources, and it's not contingent upon a federal declaration. We've had this question come up a lot over the last year or so. If California is having a rough season and they don't have a presidential declaration yet, EMAC can still be applied as long as the governor requests it. Same for reimbursement. doesn't have to have federal money in California for us to be repaid. The state that's hosting us will be responsible for paying us whether or not they get federal funds on the back end. EMAC is a good way to use mutual aid and ensure that you have immunity and, and tort protection. So when you deploy as a part of EMAC, you're actually an agent of the state and you have all the legal protections that the state can afford if anything does uh, go sideways on a mission. It's primary resource that we use before we go to the federal level. So we always attempt to do local mutual aid. We attempt to do our neighboring counties. Then we do statewide aid. When that doesn't work, we bring in uh, neighboring states through EMAC. And then when that's not enough, then we go to the federal level and work directly with FEMA. 
there's a few things that EMAC does not do. Uh, EMAC doesn't replace the need for federal support. So you don't have to use EMAC. You can go directly to federal or you can use EMAC and federal at the same time. Uh, they're not exclusive, so you can use them either way. Uh, it doesn't allow hoarding. So if we send resources out to California or Oregon and things spark up back here, uh, Washington has the ability to pull our resources back to take care of what we need to internally in the state if uh, the need does arise. Uh, it also allows us to do this without federal funds. So the, the process, we'll talk reimbursement a little bit more, but you pay your firefighters, then you send us the paperwork, we pay you, we audit the paperwork, we send it to California or Oregon, and then, then they pay us. So it's contingent upon everyone paying the people that they're responsible to pay. California is going to pay us whether or not they get federal funds, and they have to pay us whether or not they get federal funds. And we're going to pay you as soon as you send the reimbursement packet. It doesn't matter if California is ready to pay us or not. You know, we take care of the next person down and so on and so forth. Uh, this is a brief overview of the last year, just to highlight a few things you may or may not know. Uh, most of what we do in the state of Washington with EMAC is fire service related. Uh, you guys get the bulk of our business and, and the bulk of our attention. But EMAC is also used for a host of other things uh, outside of the fire service. Uh, we've done earthquakes this year, civil unrest, tropical storms, uh, winter weather in Texas, they used EMAC. Uh, flooding in Georgia, and a whole host of COVID. Just about every state on the map has used COVID-related EMAC in the past. EMAC can be used for personnel or resources or both. It can be done uh, on the ground or can actually be done remotely. A couple times this year, Washington National Guard remotely supported other states with either intelligence or satellite assets. Uh, so technical expertise can also do it during COVID. We've had a lot of our type three and type two IMT folks uh, work remotely to assist jurisdictions so EMAC can help without having to put boots on the ground. Uh, 2020 was a big year, started with the Puerto Rico earthquake uh, that had 480 National Guard and additional personnel. Uh, we had tropical storms in Louisiana and Mississippi uh, that used a good deal of uh, EMAC, including remote assets from Washington. Uh, you're all very familiar, I don't even need to highlight it, with the uh, Oregon fires and the California fires. Uh, and so it was a very busy year for EMAC. Uh, briefly, I'm going to turn it over to Alicia. Uh, most of you have worked with her before, but uh, you probably haven't seen her face. She's the one that processes all of the base agreements and the uh, amendments. So she'll be the one that's able to uh, explain this to you better. And she's the one you're going to work with for this presentation. Alicia. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'll be going over some of this uh, intergovernmental agreement for those of you who are not familiar. So hopefully you can all still see the slides. Okay, so what ITAs do is it enables the local jurisdictions that own the potential resources, whether it's equipment, personnel, uh, to mobilize. You must have an ITA in order to do so. So in order to do this, it, it is somewhat of a lengthy process. So this is why we begin these far in advance. So something you should know if you don't already is, as Adam already mentioned, deploying personnel under IGAs are considered agents of the state, provides immunity. This is why we don't allow uh, self-deploying. This is to protect you. So the process for this is when departments come to us and they say we would like to mobilize, we require some information in order to set up an IGA to do so. 
So we will always ask for the jurisdiction and the agency name and your address, a name for the contact person, along with their phone, fax, and emails so that we can ensure that the information is correct and we can get a hold of someone. We require a universal business identification number, the UBI. We will need the name of, of the person authorized to sign the EIGA, including the title. So, some authorizing definitions that we have, just so everyone is clear, is the authorizing authority is generally the person that signs it. Um, sometimes it's the chief executive officer, sometimes it's the dep department chief, sometimes it can be other people. Under authorized to sign contracts and contract amendments, this person would be the person that has the authority to sign in the space. It's usually a county commissioner or a mayor. Sometimes it's a city clerk. Um, the person who is authorized to sign reimbursements for to, uh, to sign for reimbursements, those are usually either executive directors, the city clerk. Um, a lot of the admins have this authority. It's advisable for multiple persons to have this on file, just in case one of you is not in the office and you need your R2 signed and sent back. This will expedite the process. Otherwise, it causes many delays. So once we have that information, we will draft a basic, uh, the IGA contract. And what we do is we will also, once that's drafted, we send it up to contracts and get a number for it. And once we receive that, we will send it back to you with your uh, forms for the statewide vendor and the W-9, the vendor payee deposit forms, the department certification form, and the signature authorization form. Once you get those and you've signed them, send them all back. Um, you may still scan those until further notice. Uh, that also expedites the process. So once we've gotten those back, I send those back up to contracting. It get executed. Once it's executed, your department will receive a copy. Um, that covers you for mobilizations uh, in the future. Now, I must add, add a caveat for this: is while you have the base IGA, each mobilization that you have. For example, I'll use the past ones, the 10080 mission. That requires, for example, an amendment one, if you were to go on another one, the 9931. That would require an amendment two and so forth. That process takes a little bit of time, so we also try to ensure that this is done in advance as, as much as in advance as possible in order to get those uh, to ensure that all departments are covered. I will turn it back over to Adam for the mobilization process presentation. Uh, one thing I just want to quickly add about the uh, IGAs and the amendments. Uh, we'll send it out a little bit after. We'll send it out a little bit after this meeting to let you know uh, who's are expiring in the next year or so. Uh, if your IGA contract begins with Uniform 16, uh, there's a good chance yours may expire by the end of the year. Uniform 17 next year. So we'll send out a list 
uh, to the regional coordinators to let them know when everyone's expires. And uh, those that are expiring this year will reach out to you directly and let you know uh, the process for getting them updated. The IGA amendments that Alicia talked about, those do not have to be completed uh, before you, you hit the road and, and head down to California, Oregon. We have to start the process, but they don't have to be signed uh, right away. We have a little bit of leeway through EMAC uh, to get those signed after the fact and, and get them done. They just need to be signed before reimbursement. So I'm going to go ahead and bring up the slides and again. Adam, yes. I just want to clarify, you're going to send that list to whom? So we I'm going to send it out are. to all the fire defense coordinators. I'll send it out to you, Dave. I'll send it out to uh, Dan Smith and make sure we spread it around everyone so you'll know. Uh, okay. Those departments who are, are expiring this year, we'll send that out to them directly as well to the point of contact, usually the admin or the chief, just to make sure that nothing gets missed. Because that's always been the complication when we're trying to get uh, boots out the door is the the state or the expiration of that IGA. And that's when it almost is addressed every time. So I'm a little confused on when even ours is um, expiring. So if I can get that information, that'd be great. Yeah, well, we're, we're going to push it out uh, probably by the end of the week, definitely uh, by tomorrow, just to let everyone know when theirs is expiring. Uh, if you have one in place and it starts with a U17, 18, 19, 2021, 20, uh, yours won't be expiring until the earliest next year as they, they're good for five years. Uh, some of the departments that have been doing this for a while who have ones that start with a 16, theirs may be expiring soon. You know, off the top of my head, I know one I'm going to reach out to today is uh, Kirkland. Uh, they have one of the older ones, a U16. So theirs will have to be updated before the end of the year. But we'll get to that uh, tomorrow or uh, by Friday, and we'll send it out to everyone so you know exactly what's needed. All right, let me go ahead and pull the slides up again. And I'll advance to where we were. Okay, mobilization process. Uh, by now, most of you are very familiar with this. Uh, EMAC has changed a few things, but mobilization through EMAC starts with uh, the requesting state having a governor's declaration. Uh, once that state has a governor's declaration, they can put a request into the EMAC US system. Uh, for the most part, the relationship that you all have with California and Oregon, you're gonna know this is coming way before I do. You're gonna have discussions with them. Uh, they're all gonna give you a call and let you know what's expected. Uh, so sometimes we actually will hear from from Dan or from others before California or Oregon call us and uh, keep those lines of communication open because that's gonna save us some time getting mobilized. Officially, uh, the governor of that state will put a request in through their Office of Emergency Management. It'll get broadcast in EMAC to all the member states. Uh, there'll be a notification that comes out like the little one you see on the screen. The state will tell us what they're looking for. How many engines, how many strike teams, what specific requirements they have. It's usually pretty much a standard boilerplate for what they're gonna be using you know, what mixture they want for the strike teams, what they're willing to accept. Uh, as soon as we get this, we blast it out to everyone so you can start compiling your teams. Uh, officially, once we have this request, we'll reach out to the Fire Defense Committee, State Fire Marshal, uh, let everyone know what the request is. Uh, usually set up a teleconference with myself, Mark, and the regional coordinators just to make sure we're, if we're able to offer resources. Just because we get a request from California and just because we share that request, you know, it, it's the fire community that decides if, conditions are acceptable in Washington to even offer assistance. You know, that, that comes from your side. We just facilitate it. Uh, you know the conditions better than we do. Uh, once uh, we've sent out that offer that we let you know California Oregon is looking for assistance, again, that's not a uh, authorization to deploy. That'll come separately in documentation. That's just an initial offer that they're testing the waters to see. Uh, what's going to be required of the fire service once we do push this re request out 
is a cost estimate. Uh, there's a cost estimate form. We're waiting on the new one from EMAC. Mark should have it out next week. The information is going to be the same. The format will be a little bit different. What personnel are you sending? What's their base hourly rate? What's their overtime hourly rate? What's their fringe benefit rate? What vehicles are you sending? Again, this is just an estimate. You ballpark it the best you can. If you know, you're going off of last year's reimbursement packets for their rates, that's fine. We're not tied to these rates. This is just a quick estimate to tell California or Oregon or another state about what they're looking at for the cost. You know, your base rate, your hourly rate, that's that's what you pay your employees. The equipment rate we know comes from the uh, the MOB guide and the, the the rates for those are pretty much preloaded. So if you can let us know how many vehicles you're offering of what type, how many people you're offering and what their rates are, that's pretty much enough for us to get all the EMAC paperwork together and ready to go. Uh, it's usually easier for us if it gets consolidated on your end and it gets sent to us as an entire package. Although we've done it before where we take it from uh, the different regions and we compile it here as well. It's just really what's expedient. Uh, so if I could offer one tip is as you're getting ready for the next fire season and you know who your wildland folks are going to be, uh, start having a spreadsheet with this information on there for your admins. You know, who the personnel are, what their rates are, what their fringe benefit rate is, uh, what vehicles, what vehicle bumper numbers or engine numbers you're going to send and what the rates for those are. Having that ready on a, a combined spreadsheet where you can just pick the names off you're going to send will, will save a lot of time on your end. Uh, you know, uh, usually we're waiting on uh, these manifests before we can get the official word from California. So anything you can do on your end to, to pre-fill them out uh, will save some time. Once we have those estimates, we'll send them to California digitally. They'll give us either a verbal authorization and say, you know, we accept it. You can send your people. And when they do that, they're financially on the hook for everything we're sending. Uh, they'll send paperwork after the fact. But once we have a verbal authorization from California to Washington State, we'll pass that on. And then that will be the uh, execution order to deploy. Uh, the IGA amendment that Alicia talked about, we will begin filling those out as soon as we get the paperwork from you, which is paperwork being the estimates and the equipment numbers. Uh, those you may not have before you deploy, and that's perfectly fine. Once we give you either an email confirmation or a verbal authorization to deploy, you're completely covered as agents of the state for uh, financial reimbursement and liability. Uh, so the IJ amendments will follow. We try to get them out a few days after. Again, this year with COVID, uh, there's a lot of other things going on, so that slowed down the process. Uh, but as long as you have a verbal authorization from our end uh, to the regional coordinators, uh, you guys will be good to deploy and be covered. There will be an official mission authorization order that comes out through EMAC that's signed by parties from both states. Uh, we try to have this ready before you deploy. Uh, but as long as we have it verbally from the requesting state, again, you're covered financially and for liability. Okay, here's the meat of the process. And by all means, if something isn't clear or you need it restated or you have a question, this is where I expect to be interrupted a couple of times. Uh, I, there's a good number of admins on the uh, call today that I've worked with. And so they've probably heard this from me different ways. But again, if you have questions, please interrupt. You're not gonna, you're not gonna slow it down too much. You're not gonna hurt my feelings. I wanna be able to give out some good information. The reimbursement is based upon, oh, I'm sorry. The reimbursement forms we've updated are based upon direct feedback we've gotten from the admins. Either things that they wanna have changed from the forms, things that don't work, things that aren't clear. And some of the things we've automated so it, it saves time on your end. We understand you've got 700 things on your plate when it's not fire season. When it's fire season, you and your admins are, are working double duty. So we're trying to make this process simpler. We're trying to make this process take less time. And our goal is that uh, for this upcoming year, once you submit a packet, 
It comes to us. We quickly look at it. We ask for a signature and it's a one and done process, not having to go back and forth uh, asking for more documentation because we know that's a pain on your end. We understand it. So anything we can do today or in the future to answer questions before these packets get submitted that will save you time from having to dig up paperwork from six, seven, eight months ago, uh, we will definitely do that to try to make this faster. Reimbursement timeline. Uh, Emacs says we want to try and have these submitted to us within 45 days. We completely understand that this is not practical in a lot of cases. With the way your pay cycles are, it may take you know two, three, four pay cycles to get everything ironed out. Bottom line is that we will pay uh, what you are owed and make you whole, no matter how long it takes over the course of the, the year after deployment. Uh, 45 days is the goal we're shooting for. I don't think we've gotten there. Uh, it's where we want to get to, but if you get it turned in at 60, 90, 180 days, we are going to work with you. We're going to get this paid. Uh, we'd like to get it sooner, but we understand there's a whole lot of things outside of our control and your control. You know, don't be concerned that you're getting it on a few days later, a few weeks later, even a month late. Uh, we're going to work with you. We're going to get these paid. We have a new workbook that we're sending out to you. It's going to be sent out after this call today. It's going to be posted on our website and we're going to spread it around. Uh, we've automated a lot of things and we've had to ask for some new information because, as you know, EMAC is a nationwide program. So we've had to adjust our forms to account for new information that California, Oregon and other states are going to ask for. Uh, the workbook we're going to send out starts with a start here page. Uh, it's the first place you're going to go. And once I get through these slides, I'm actually going to pull up the workbook on the screen and go through the steps and, and show you all the different tabs. Uh, so these are just some screenshots right now to get you a, a quick overview. And then we're going to go through the workbook. Like I said, we're going to push it out this afternoon so you can take a look at it, ask your questions before you have to use it. Uh, you go from the start here tab, and there's a bunch of areas you'll see in yellow on the right where you start to fill out the information. All the information you put on this page, it will then automatically populate on all the other forms. You won't have to enter the mission number more than once. You won't have to enter the department name more than once. You won't have to enter uh, phone numbers and contacts more than one place. It'll go on all the forms where it needs to be, so you fill it out on this page, and about half the work is already going to be done. The workbook uh, that we're sending out, uh, for the most part, is locked, so that way the formulas can't accidentally get uh, erased as it gets passed from person to person to person. Uh, we know it's been frustrating over the last year or so that uh, you submit documents and uh, a formula has been changed or edited in some way that it, it makes the numbers not work. Uh, we've got it set up right now, so it's uh, mostly automated. So there's very little chance for error on our part and very little chance for error on your part. At the bottom of that first page, the Start Here page, there'll be a spot for you to enter in uh, your employees' names and titles and backfill names and titles if you have backfill. Once you list them here, like I said, it's going to put those names on their ITRs, their individual time records. It's going to put their names on the labor sheet. It's going to put their names on the travel documents. It's going to have all their names in one spot. That way, uh, it, it saves a little bit of time while you're filling it out. The second part of this new workbook is there's an entire page devoted just to instructions and notes. There's a little clip in here, but on the page, but we've got about 75 different notes on there. Uh, each one corresponds to a spot that needs to be filled out on the workbook. And you'll note for most of them, there's a spot in red, uh, which will tell you exactly what documentation, what forms we need uh, to justify the information you put into that spot. Once I pull up the workbook at the end, I'll go through those in a little bit more detail, but we've actually listed out exactly what documents we need and why uh, to verify this information. You know, we trust what we're getting from you and, and we know that the information we're getting is valid, 
But you have to remember that once we receive it, it has to go to state finance where they're going to audit it. Then it's going to go to California where California's finance is going to audit it again. So we want to make sure we have all the documents that we know state finance and California or Oregon or whatever state is going to need before they ask us. Because we have some reimbursements that have been waiting with California for a few years now. And when we have to go back and, and get pay stubs from two, three, four, five years ago after employees have changed, the admins have changed, it really slows down the process. So we want to try and get all the documents up front first. It's going to save everybody a, a little bit of headache and get you your money faster. Uh, we know especially the smaller departments, uh, the, the paycheck they get from EMAC makes a difference. Uh, so anything we can do to speed it up through documents, uh, we're going to work with you to try and do. The key part of the workbook, as you know from working on these in the past, is the ITR, the individual time record. The ITR is a summary of not only the time worked on the incident, which you get from the CTR, the crew time report that's been filled out on scene, it also consolidates all the pay information, the rate information, all of it in one spot. So when you're filling out these ITRs, and again, I'll pull up the workbook at the end and go through these in a little bit more detail, there's some things we're definitely going to need that uh, we don't always get when we get these reimbursement packets. Uh, the way the ITR works, you're going to fill out all the information for the pay, you're going to fill out the hours worked on the incident, and you're also going to work on your backfill or your regular scheduled time. The way backfill works and the way regular scheduled time works is a little confusing, definitely confusing for me, not coming from the fire service, and definitely confusing for those of you that have filled it out. Bottom line, if you have an employee who's scheduled on his regular shift at your department, you know, eight to eight, 24 hour shift, three or four times over the course of a deployment, we are paying you for that shift that he was supposed to work. Uh, we know your employees are salaried. We know that their pay is based on a set number of hours. So if he was scheduled to work five 24 hour shifts during the course of a deployment, you have an option of getting regular reimbursement for those full shifts. It doesn't matter if on those days he only worked five or six hours in California. If he was scheduled for a 24 hour shift and he missed it because he was deployed, we have the option of paying you for that entire 24-hour shift at his regular rate. We also have the option, you have the option of doing backfill. If someone had to come in and work that shift for him, we reimburse that entire 24-hour shift at whatever rate you paid the backfilling employee. For most departments, we know that that backfilling employee is, is overtime. And so we reimburse the overtime you paid for the backfilling employee which is usually going to be more than uh, the deployed employee's regular time. You have the option to do backfill. You have the option to not do backfill. You have the option to claim that regular scheduled shift. Or in the past, we've had departments that haven't claimed that regular shift just based on their pay practices. We can form to your local pay practices and try to get you as much reimbursement as you're authorized and as much as possible. In order to do that, we need the employee's regular schedule, either a platoon calendar a telestaff, CrewSense, or whatever different software you use to show what days they were supposed to work before the deployment. Now, if you can just photocopy your platoon roster or your platoon calendar and highlight and circle what days each employee was supposed to work, uh, that's enough for us to prove to California that they were regularly scheduled. If they have a shift trade, we just need something from telestaff or CrewSense or whatever you're using to show that that vacation was scheduled or that shift uh, change was scheduled in advance, and then we're able to process that. So if you have an employee who was regularly scheduled for a shift that took place during deployment, if he had a vacation in place, then all of the hours worked on the incident during that time are compensated in overtime or your vacation pay time. 
if you have a shift trade, the same thing happens. It's as if it wasn't a scheduled workday and he gets compensated in overtime. So we're going to need copies of the schedules, telestaff, some way that explains or shows when he had a vacation, when he had a Kelly day, when he had a shift trade or anything other than a normal workday. We're going to need a copy of your department policy that shows how you pay your employees. And I realize this doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but not every department does a 40-hour work week with overtime above 40 hours. Uh, some departments have overtime on the weekends or overtime after a certain hour of the day. We're going to pay based on whatever your department policies are. We're just going to need a copy of that policy so that not only that we understand it, but so that we can explain it to California or Oregon or another state. The same with your vacation policies, your Kelly Day policies, uh, comp time policies. We will pay to your local standards as long as it uh, we can justify it to California. The only caveat to that is uh, the EMAC regulations and the EMAC requirements for Washington State do not allow us to pay portal to portal. Uh, we know in, in California and others, they have different practices. So we're not able to pay portal to portal for the entire mission. We're able to pay for hours worked and travel time and to reimburse you for backfill for scheduled shifts. But portal to portal is the one area where if your local department has a policy, we can't conform to it. Lastly, uh, Adam, yeah. Yeah, I, I think we need to do some clarification here. Again, I believe EMAC pays in accordance with the department's pay practice. Is that you've made that statement several times and is that that's not that's correct, right? That is correct. We, we pay in accordance with your department practices. However, the EMAC contract, the, the base contract we send out and the amendments has a uh, special language that uh, Washington State has to comply to that states that portal to portal is not authorized. So that's no, the only area that, where we can't. Well, and that's not entirely true. Uh, again, it's about your pay practice. If you pay portal to portal in the state of Washington for mobilizations, either state, DNR, whatever your agency does, even though it's not reimbursed to the agency, that's the pay practice of the agency that should be reimbursed by AMAC. That, that exclusion is there. It's their pay practice. We cannot uh, change that part of it. And EMAC allows for that. So we've always, uh, for example, the city of Seattle, they they don't have an hour's work arrangement within their contract. So they have to pay portal to portal to their employees when they when they go, whether it's here in the state of Washington or whether it's in California, that part is reimbursable. I, I'm not I can push I can push out the, the legal language uh, after this and and the clarification that we've had from our folks and from Mark. But under the EMAC base contracts that uh, we send out and the amendments that the department sign for the EMAC deployment, uh, there's boilerplate language over the last year or so that's been refined that portal to portal is something that we're not allowed to pay. Uh, even though it may be a local pay practice, uh, we've not pay been paying it over the course of the last year for EMAC and for uh, any future deployments. But I can get that specific legal language pushed out to you just, just to clarify because of it. Uh, because EMAC is an outside of the state deployment, if that is part of a local pay practice for inside the state, it's not going to apply for an EMAC outside the state deployment. I I, I respectfully disagree and we'll ha have to talk offline because the EMAC uh, process is based on our department or our state's uh, mobilization plan uh, for EMAC. 
and that uh, if it's a, a, a practice within the state, it's a practice out of the state. We're not going to give California a better deal than we give Washington State. That doesn't happen. So um, and 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 in reverse of that, we're not going to charge California more than we charge Washington. That's the part you can't do. So yeah, I, I completely understand, and I'll I'll get with Mark and with you and clarify this. I'm willing to pay whatever whatever I'm told from my my superiors, my supervisors. I'm allowed to. It's just been a an issue over the last year, and the guidance I have from Mark uh, has been that because of the EMAC uh, base contracts, we're no longer paying portal to portal. But I definitely agree that we should do a better job of clarifying this. And if we're allowed to, uh, by all means, we want to make the departments whole. Uh, but we can address that after and, and push out a clarification if we need to. Yeah, I, th I think we need to. Uh, we'll have that discussion. Thank you. No, definitely. I, I'm glad you brought it up because it it does come up every fire season uh, where there's some issues that need clarification. And uh, on my end, I want to pay everything that's that comes out of your pocket so your apartments are made whole. Yeah, well, that, you know, the statement in which you're referring to is driven by our state. So, um not by EMAC as a national program. Uh, it's, it's, it is allowable under EMAC. I mean, the, the idea is they're supposed to make the department whole. The department paid it, they got to pay it. And um, yes, as our practice, you know, the, the, the legal practice here is you can't charge another state more than you charge your own state. That's sort of the baseline. But if we're charging our own state portal to portal because we don't have contractual differences there um, that allow us to do something different in our pay practice, then, you know, we should be reimbursed on that because we're charging our own state that even though our state won't reimburse that, that's that's not the issue. You know, there are two different things. One is paid out, one's reimbursable. But California should certainly have to or Oregon or Louisiana <laughs> have to, you know, pay that that uh, and at yeah. least from my understanding and and i'll get clarification from mark as he's the, the subject matter expert is it's a, a state internal uh requirement and not a california or oregon uh you're right when you say that california or oregon will will pay everything that we've paid out uh but we'll we'll, we'll get more into uh the portal to portal uh with mark's guidance and and make sure that uh we're all clear on the same page before the season starts okay thank you sir appreciate it Okay, so uh, going on to the pay stub in relation to the new form, uh, you'll see on the, the form we put up on the screen, EMAC is now requiring that we break out the times by regular holiday pay, overtime pay, and comp time pay, whereas before it was just regular and overtime. Uh, so we've set the forms up to account for that in uh, EMAC reimbursements, and the forms that we're going to send out to you today now account for that. Uh, for the most part, uh, holiday pay is going to be uh, the same as your overtime pay, but uh, some departments have leeway and whatever your pay practices are. If you pay a different holiday rate and a holiday occurs during a deployment, we uh, list that as holiday time and you're compensated accordingly. Uh, comp time. Comp time is a little uh, different. We're going to need a copy of your pay, pay practices if you're doing comp time and we're able to reimburse comp time uh, for the value that it currently is at the end of the deployment. Uh, so we know a, a lot of guys will hold on to their comp time until you know, the end of the year, or the holidays, uh, we're only able to reimburse what it would be worth is if it was cashed in at the end of the deployment, even though, you know, at the end of the year, it may be worth a little bit more when it finally becomes exchanged. Uh, for the regular pay and overtime pay, there's several different ways we can verify that to uh, the requesting states. Uh, 
some departments are paying a straight regular fee. Uh, so it's listed on the pay stub. You know, you have 4,764 hours or $4,764 at $68 an hour. It works out to a certain fee. Uh, other departments, we know you're paying on a, a yearly hours. So, you know, 2,080 hours or what have you. We just need an explanation from you as to how you determine your hourly rate. If it's simply dividing the, the amount and the hours from the pay stub, uh, that's easy. If it's going off of yearly hours and a, a base salary, all we need is an explanation from your finance or a, a copy of your pay practices so that we can verify that to the host state to make sure we get you exactly what you're requesting. So on the new ITR form, you'll fill in the regular rate, you'll fill in the overtime rate and holiday or comp time if you have it. We have the form now automatically set up and you'll see it at the end where you select whether the employee is social security eligible, Medicare eligible, or LEOFF eligible. Uh, I know in the past there's been a little confusion with LEOFF2. LEOFF2, if your employees are participants to it, is a set rate and there's a new rate that comes out uh, July 1st, so the new forms have that accounted for it. When your employees are performing services for a non-LEOFF entity, such as EMD during an EMAC mission, there's an additional percentage that has to get added on for the LEOFF state contribution. Uh, it's not always been clear in the past since uh, some departments don't always do outside of the state mobilizations. But when you're performing services for another firefighter or law entity, you just have the straight LAOFF2 rate. When you're performing services for a non-firefighting or non-law enforcement entity such as EMD, there's the additional state match that gets put on there. Uh, so we have the form set up that when you select mobilized, it will populate that state matching percentage uh, for all your deployed employees. Uh, this year, it was 8.77% combined you know, 5.33% for LEOFF, 3.44% for the state match. Again, this is only for uh, deployed employees. Your backfilled employees, if you choose to do backfill, since they're still working for your department, are only uh, benefiting from LEOFF itself, not from the state match. Uh, you go ahead and fill in whatever your LNI insurance is for your hourly rate. You fill in shift premium, and you fill in the medical and dental. Uh, the shift premium uh, can be a combination of longevity pay, education pay, whatever your local practices uh, conform to, just send us a copy of that policy and you fill in the, the shift premium pay as long as it's noted on uh, the pay stub. Depending on how your pay stubs are issued, uh, we know some of the things such as dental or some of the shift premiums, educational incentives might not be on every pay stub. They might be only on the beginning of the month or the end of the month pay stub. Just go ahead and send us that additional pay stub and highlight it with a little note that says, this is the monthly uh, dental, or this is the monthly longevity pay, and we'll make sure it matches the documents that are needed for California or Oregon. Uh, we just want to make sure that if it's something that your department is paying on behalf of the employee, that it gets fully reimbursed in terms of medical ben benefits, insurance benefits, uh, shift premium, educational, all of those rates uh, get added into the form so that we can make sure you get paid for it. Uh, so the form now breaks it out by those different types of pay groups. The form now calculates the benefit rates and hourly rates for you. And unlike before, where you had to take those rates and transfer them to another form uh, to add up the totals, the forms will now do that for you. So when you put the employee's information on this form, it'll transfer it over to the labor form and already calculate that for you. Okay, uh, we talked about this before. We're going to talk about this again because it, uh, some departments don't do the backfill and you can end up getting a little bit more money out of it, either from backfill or from your regular hours. Uh, in this example, you'll see the employee on the screen had three 24-hour shifts that took place during the deployment. 
you know, 24 hour shift from 08 to 08 on the 13th, on the 15th, and on the 17th. The proof for this or the validation for this that we'll use is just that platoon calendar, that shift calendar that's there on the right. You'll see that uh, whatever the, the green color is, we'll say A shift, uh, this employee is scheduled for the 13th, 15th, and 17th. So those days are fully reimbursable. Those 24 hour shifts are fully reimbursable at regular rate for the employee. It doesn't matter if the California deployment on those days were only five or six or seven hours, you're getting reimbursed for the full rate at regular time for the shifts that employee was supposed to work. You have the option of reimbursing them at regular time for those shifts, or you have the option of paying a backfill employee who covered their shifts for them. However, uh, EMAC practices say you can't pay both. So if you're getting reimbursement for you know, Smith's regular time on that day, you can't also get reimbursement for the backfill. Uh, usually departments will go with whichever is higher of the two, and in most cases it is the backfill as an overtime employee. But again, it's your choice which one to choose. So you'll see here, we take the hours worked on the incident, uh, you know, 14-hour day, 19-hour day, 10-hour day, what have you. We take a look at the shifts that the person was scheduled beforehand, 24-hour shift on the 13th, the 15th, the 18th, and then we combine the two of them. Uh, on these ITR forms, uh, please list, list each time on a separate line. So if you have regular time and overtime that occurs during the same day, please list them as separate lines. That way we can see which specific hours during the day you're claiming as regular time, which ones you're claiming as overtime or holiday time. Uh, for some days, you may have two or three entries for the same day, like you see on the screen for the 14th and the 15th or the 16th. You know, one entry uh, for each type of pay during that day. So regular pay gets its own line, holiday pay gets its own line. That way, if we need to explain to it to the other state as to which hours during the day and why, uh, that's how we're able to do it. So if you have a regular shift, a 24-hour shift from 08 to 08, and you're reimbursed for regular time for the entirety of that shift, whether you worked it on the incident or not, everything you work before that or after that is overtime. So when you get off that shift at 08, the scheduled shift, uh, if you're already on mission uh, on the incident, the time will continue as overtime. So from 08 all the way until the end of that work shift is now going to be overtime pay. Everything during your reg regular scheduled shift would count as either regular pay if you're paying the employee directly or overtime backfill pay if you're paying a backfill employee. Uh, so before I go on, are there any questions about uh, backfill and regular shifts? Because I know this is, has always been a, a, a confusing issue in the past. All right, not hearing any, I'll go on to the next. Um, uh, Adam, Adam, yes, sir. Excuse me, sir. Uh, I, I don't know if it's just me or, or not, but I'm I'm only I'm still seeing the same slide says reimbursement timeline. I haven't seen any change in slides. Are are you changing those or are we not? No, no, I'm changing them. It should be uh, following on my end. If it's not, let me go ahead and reload them, and I'll pull that back up. I'm glad you let me know. Yeah, I'm sorry. I I don't know if it was just me or everybody's having the same problem. Just you, sir. Oh, you guys were seeing them? Yes, sir. Yeah, we were That's seeing weird. them. <laughs> now I'm seeing all the changes. Well, I'm, I'm glad I reloaded it, even if it was just on your end. So uh, any questions about backfill or regular time and how to compensate that uh, before we move on? All right, not hearing any. Uh, vacation days, shift trades, Kelly days, 
Uh, all we'll need is a copy of uh, whatever timekeeping system you use, either Telestaff, CrewSense. There's a couple other ones out there that show the employee had a scheduled leave day or the employee had a shift trade or a Kelly day or something in place, and we'll compensate that accordingly. Uh, so if they have a Kelly day that occurs during the deployment and it occurred on a day when they were regularly scheduled, that day becomes overtime for them uh, the same way it would be if they had to work on one of those days uh, at your department. We'll just need a copy of your local pay practices that show how you handle vacation days or Kelly days, et cetera, and we'll process it on our end. Uh, per diem. Uh, per diem follows in Washington State follows the Washington State Administrative and Accounting Manual, uh, which goes under the GSA rates. So for EMAC, we have to use the GSA rates, even though uh, inside the state there may be a little bit different. Personnel have to be in a travel status. So that means on the CTR, the crew time record, uh, has to be in a travel status for when they're on the road from home station uh, to a hotel or directly to the incident. Uh, the way the SAM manual breaks it out, you have to be in a travel status for the entire meal period for that meal to count. So the meal periods, according to the SAM, uh, breakfast is 6.30 to 8, lunch is 11 to 1, dinner is 5 to 6.30. So if you get on the road at 6, the breakfast period occurs during your travel time, your authorized breakfast reimbursement. If you get on the road at 7, according to the SAM manual, uh, you had 30 minutes before the mission when you should have gotten breakfast. So that breakfast period will not be reimbursable. Uh, so I know you're going to get on the road and get down there as fast as you can, but keep that in mind when you're uh, figuring out what you can and cannot reimburse through us for meals. So if they're on the road during the entire meal period, uh, all three meals are reimbursed. Uh, we verify this by the crew time report that's filled out during the incident. And uh, that's how we'll validate it to California or Oregon. Now there's two ways we can pay or we can reimburse or you can request reimbursement uh, for meals. You can request uh, the per diem rate. You know, you look at the GSA rate for the location, you know, $13 for breakfast, $15 for lunch, $25 for dinner. If you directly pay your employee that flat rate to cover those meals, we will directly reimburse you that flat rate without the need for any receipts. Uh, so you don't need to prove how much you spent to eat. If you paid your employee a flat per diem rate, we can pay you that same flat per diem rate up to the GSA rate uh, for the zip code. If your department chooses to either use credit card or pay the exact meal rates, in that case, we'll need a copy of the receipts uh, that show what was spent on the meal, a copy of the credit card statement that was used for the, the meal, and then a copy of how your department paid that credit card bill. Uh, California has expressed in the past they still need to see verification that the credit card bill was paid. That could be a copy of a, a check or a warrant. It could be the next pay stub that says uh, zero balance, or it could be an email or notation from your finance department saying officially that this bill has been paid. You know, any one of those forms will suffice. Uh, I think in the past, we've seen that departments that have the ability to do the flat per diem rate are usually reimbursed more and are able to claim more expenses than the exact meal rate. But again, it's what the department chooses to do and how the department chooses to document it. Uh, we only need receipts if you're requesting the exact meal rate, uh, the exact meal amount that was spent, and those meal amounts have to be at or under the GSA rate. Uh, caveat to that is for hotels and lodging. Uh, we understand that uh, when you guys are deploying to California, Oregon, or other states, there's probably a good chance most of those hotels are going to be booked with people that are moving out of the impacted area or it's the summer travel season. You're not going to be able to find the cheap government rate at all the hotels. 
you know, we're going to reimburse you for whatever you end up having to pay for lodging. We just will need a statement from your department on department letterhead that says we are unable to find a hotel at the GSA rate. Excess lodging fee was due to the fact that all the hotels in the area were overbooked. Uh, that statement alone is all California or Oregon will require to reimburse you fully for the uh, hotel rate. So meal rate, we can only reimburse up to the GSA rate. Uh, lodging rate, we're going to pay you what you paid uh, because you're going there at times when the hotels are not available to give you a good rate. Uh, here's how we determine what rate to use. Uh, basically, it's where you're going to sleep that night is the overarching uh, principle for this one. But scenario number one, you know, say you're in Walla Walla. You're driving down to California. You drive from Walla Walla and stop in Anderson, California uh, for a hotel along the way. All of your meals on that day from Walla Walla to the hotel will be reimbursed at the zip code rate for where that hotel is. In this example, Anderson, California. The next morning you get up, drive from that hotel in Anderson, California uh, to the incident in Santa Rosa. It's where you slept the previous night. So all of your GSA rates will still be the rate for Anderson, California, all the way down to the incident. During the incident, we know in the past, uh, Cal OES might decide to shift you between incidents. Uh, it's a big state. You may have to travel from one incident to the other. That travel time, as long as it's noted on your CTR, your crew time report, will also be reimbursable as travel time for food. So if they have you get up at 6 in the morning, you know, do a couple-hour move to another location, that time is eligible for meal reimbursement. In that case, the meal reimbursement will be at the rate for uh, where that new incident is, or the zip code for where that base camp is going to be. Just make a note of it on your forms, you know, base camp at the, you know, Calistoga campgrounds in this county, and we'll figure out the appropriate rate to pay you. Uh, if you go straight directly from uh, your home station to the incident, then the GSA rate for uh, where you ate applies. So if you drive from Walla Walla straight down to Oregon, you know, wherever you stop to eat is the rate we're going to pay you since there was no lodging uh, that's taken into account for that. Uh, for incidental rate, you'll see on the GSA, they also include a $5 incidental rate for the day. That is only allowed to be applied if you're claiming all three meals for the day. So if you're claiming a breakfast, lunch, and dinner all during a travel period, you can also add on the incidental rate of $5 uh, for those meals. Uh, GSA only lets us pay that if you're claiming all three meals during the day. Going on to equipment, you'll see that the uh, equipment form we're using is slightly different as uh, EMAC has asked us to break it out uh, a little bit more in terms of daily costs and daily mileage. It now has drop-down menus on the form. Uh, you'll see when we pull it up in a few minutes. You select command vehicle at a daily rate, then whatever you put in for the daily rates, you put in a one for January 2nd, a one for January 3rd, and one for January 4th, you'll be reimbursed at the command vehicle rate for that number of days. Uh, looking in the fire mode guide, the most recent one, command vehicle is reimbursed uh, for fireline mileage and fireline daily at $50 a day. Uh, if you decide to do mileage for that command vehicle, it's reimbursed at $1.14 per mile. You can choose differently for each day you're on the deployment, like you see in the example here. It's more advantageous on the way down to claim mileage, if you, especially if you're doing, you know, three, four, 500 miles to get down there. You claim mileage for that day. The next day, you claim the daily rate since the vehicle's maybe parked at base camp or only going a little bit. The next day, if you travel around a little bit, you can claim mileage. Uh, in the past, uh, and we rely on the uh, emergency equipment shift tickets for this. In the past, we've seen where they'll combine mileage over two or three days and just have it 
on the shift ticket and only have it for that day. It's more advantageous to you to list it on the daily basis. That way you can get the daily rate for the other days when you're not traveling. But again, uh, we'll reimburse you according to the mobilization guide at the daily rate or the mileage rate, depending on the type of vehicle. For all of your apparatus, for your, your engines and tenders, all those are reimbursed at a daily rate. Uh, anytime your equipment is used for less than eight hours, so either on the, the trip back, uh, if it takes you less than eight hours to get back and you're on the road for less than eight, the daily rate is half of what's listed in the guide. Uh, and that's in accordance with the, the mobilization guide. So if it was a six hour trip to get back, you're paid 0.5 for that day as opposed to one for the daily rate. This hasn't really been an issue this fire season. I know in, in previous fire seasons, there was a little confusion. The daily rate is what's considered a wet rate. So when we hire that type one engine at $1,862 for the day, that rate includes fuel and all routine maintenance. So you can't claim fuel in and above that 1862 for the day. If uh, major damage happens during the incident and Cal OES or Oregon OEM uh, document it and authorize the repair, that can be requested up and above. But if you need to get windshield wiper fluid or you need to you know, air up a tire, or change a tire, or routine maintenance, that's a part of your, your owning the vehicle and part of the 1862 a day. If there's no questions about the slideshow, uh, I'm going to go ahead and pull up the Excel workbook and I'll review that with everybody for as long as you want to stay on the call. So before I go any further, are there any questions? All right, not hearing none. Give me a second and I will pull up the Excel workbook. And then if I could just get someone quickly to let me know that uh, they can see it. Um, yeah, I can see it. All right, so uh, like I said in the slides, uh, this workbook is going to begin. You'll see down at the bottom here, there's a tab that says start here. Uh, that's where you're going to begin entering your information. Uh, all the yellow areas are where you can enter in your information. So you'll be able to put in your fire department name. If I can type uh, the state, your contract number. This is the one that's uniform 17-000 or 001 that identifies your individual contract. Uh, next, you're going to put in the name of the person who's completing the packet. Uh, that way we know who to, to talk to directly if we have any questions or we need any additional documents. Uh, phone number and email address for that person. Who is the person that can sign the document? Uh, title, email address, phone number. Next is going to be the address. What's the address for official billing? When our finance office is going to send out copies of contracts or send out uh, a check, what's the address where you want it to go to? Next is your statewide vendor number. Uh, if you don't know it, leave it blank and we'll look it up. But everyone who is eligible to do business with the state has a statewide vendor number. Sometimes each department is going to have their own. Sometimes it's held at the city or county level. Sometimes there's multiple for the city or county. So if you don't know it, you know, we'll go through OFM and, and figure out exactly what it is. If you know it, put it on there. If you don't, leave it blank. Uh, UBI, Unified Business Identifier. Every entity that's able to do business uh, should have one of these for tax purposes. Again, if you don't know it, leave it blank and we'll figure it out. But if you do know it, put it on here. It's going to save a little bit of time. Next one where it says uh, enter the fund code, this is on our end. Uh, we pay all the departments from the DRA, the disaster response account. So we just need to know how to allocate it. Uh, leave that blank. We'll fill that out on our end. Next section is mission information. Enter the EMAC mission name that's on the contract. And this is an area that, that causes confusion on our end. Uh, when you submit documents 
as the glass fire, the castle fire, the LNU fire. On our end, we're not fire personnel. We don't always know what the names are you're using locally on the incident. We just need to know the EMAC mission name. That'll be the one that's on your contract. You know, 2020 California September fires, California lightning fires, Oregon wildfire, the overarching name we use for the mission. Next is where you'll put in the incident name that you use locally during the incident. Glass fire, castle fire, uh, LNU fire. Put them all in that one spot. That way, if some of the documents do have that name on there, we won't have to email back and forth a couple times. We're able to, to get that information up front. Now, when it comes to these reimbursement packages, everything that occurs during an EMAC mission, please submit together. It doesn't matter if the first part of your mission, you were at the glass fire, and then Cal OES then sent you to the castle fire. On the EMAC reimbursement end, all of that is one reimbursement. Send everything together as one, one set of documents, and it'll get processed a little bit faster. Next, you'll see EMAC mission number. Uh, this is the one that's usually going to start with 1877-RR resource request, and then a four or five-digit number. So the ones for last year, uh, 9864-9931 were the first California deployments. 10010 was the Oregon mission. 10080 was the last California mission. List that on here because that's how we're going to allocate it on our end to make sure uh, we're putting the paperwork together for the correct deployment. Lastly is the state mission number. It should be on your EMAC contract. The first two digits relate to the year. The next four digits relate to the uh, number of incidents that the state has during the year. Again, if you don't know it, leave it blank. It's not going to stop your packet from getting processed. It just might take a few minutes on our end to dig it up and find it. Uh, also added onto this workbook, you'll see the personal information section. We've set this workbook up to handle 20 mobilized employees and 20 backfilled employees. If your department sends more than that, uh, shoot us a quick email and I'll put up our email contacts at the end, including some new ones, and we'll send you a custom workbook that's a little bit larger. But this one is pre-set up for up to 20 employees, uh, and that way it'll have everything set for you. On the forms, you'll go ahead and enter the employee's name and title all the way down the list. And these documents are linked. So when you put under mobilized one, you put down Dan Smith, chief, that is going to show up on the ITR page, the individual time record page. It's already going to have his name. On the travel page, it's already going to have his name. On the labor overview, it's already going to have his name. So you only need to put things in one place. Now, you'll note down here at the bottom of the screen, you'll see ITR-1, ITR-2, ITR-3, ITR-4. We're only showing the first four right now. That way, you don't have to scroll all the way left or right. Because many times, departments are only sending three or four personnel on these missions. So when you have a person to put in either four, five, six, seven, or more, you're going to right-click on that tab at the bottom. You're going to go to unhide and unhide the next one that you need. So you can show all 20, and you can do the same thing for backfilled. We just chose to only show four at the first to not have too much on the screen and not make it too complicated. But you right-click and show them. If you don't need it, just go back to hide that one, and it disappears. Please don't delete any tabs of this page if you don't use them, as they all have information that's linked back and forth. So on the start here page, you'll see we've already entered in some names for employees and titles. When you go to the labor page, you'll see it populates those names and titles automatically, so you don't need to retype any of that. So here we've got Steve Rogers, a captain who's listed as mobilized employee number two. When you go look at ITR number two, it's already going to have employee's name at the top. It's already going to have the mission number. It's already going to have the state mission number. 
It's already going to have that information there for you, so you're not typing it in multiple places. So now we're going to go over the uh, ITR form because there have been some changes based on your feedback, and there have been some changes based on uh, EMAC requirements. Uh, mission name, num name and number at the top, that's already going to pre-populate by itself. Uh, deployed employee name, you put on the start page. Uh, the start and from dates, you can leave these blank or you can enter these in. In the past, we've had some cases where either an employee gets injured and has to leave early, or you swap someone out for a longer deployment, so they may not be there for the entire mission. You're going to adjust these uh, deployment dates or leave them blank. You have the option. It's going to be preset for mobilized because these are the ITRs for mobilized employees. So when mobilized is selected, you'll see that the LAOFF2 rate applies. If you were to change it to backfilled, you'll see that rate no longer applies, so it's not going to cause a problem with the reimbursement. So you'll make sure it says mobilized for your mobilized employee. The next choice for your retirement plan, LAOFF2, peers, one, two, three, pieces. Uh, these are all the ones that are eligible in the state you'll have in the drop-down list. Uh, for the most part, it's either going to be LAOFF2 or Social Security or Medicaid. But we also use these for other state employees, other county employees that deploy. So we had to make this form applicable. So you're going to select LAOFF2 if it applies. Or if none of these apply, you'll just leave it as blank, none, and it won't take it into account. For this example, for this employee, uh, he's an LAOFF2 employee. So it's going to calculate the LAOFF2 rate based on the hourly rate and the percentage. Uh, the hourly rates are correction. The percentages for LAOFF have been updated as of 1 July. Uh, if you haven't seen them yet on our instruction page, all the way up at the top, and I'll do the instruction page separately in a second, uh, we have links to those locations for those rates. So this takes into account all the rates starting on 1 July 2020. If this employee is eligible for Medicare, select yes, and it'll add in the 1.45% uh, for Medicare. If they're not eligible for Medicare, select no. Same thing for Social Security. If they're eligible for Social Security, select yes. If they're not eligible, select no. Uh, on the instruction page, you'll see for these, uh, for, there it is, for Social Security. If the employee is eligible for Social Security, in red, you'll see pay stub will be sufficient if it clearly shows Social Security on the pay stub. Documentation must be provided if it doesn't. So if your employees are eligible for Social Security and it's being paid either uh, quarterly, monthly, or some other way, you know, we just need a document showing that that is being paid for them. Same thing for LAOFF2. If the employee is a beneficiary of LAOFF2, we just need to see it on their pay stub, and that way it will be reimbursed. Uh, so going back to the ITR, you input the regular rate either by dividing their, uh, their pay stub amount by hours, or if you're using you know, 2,080 hours a year or 2,100 hours, whatever your pay practice is, put in the hourly rate that you're paying the employee. The same thing for overtime, same thing for holiday pay, if you're claiming holiday pay, uh, same thing for comp time. Comp time, we will need a copy of your policy, but you're gonna determine comp time as if you were paying it out to the employee at the end of the deployment. This form is automatically gonna add up all these rates and give you the total compensation uh, hourly. And then it's also gonna break it down here separately uh, for regular rate, this employee's regular rate is $35.63 an hour. His benefit rate is $16.44 for every regular hour because that includes medical and dental, shift premium, and other things. Overtime rate is $70.06 an hour. 
with a benefit rate of 8.09. If you pay medical and dental on overtime, go ahead and let us know and we'll add it into here. You pay shift premium, add it in. If you pay L&I for overtime, uh, add it into that spot on the form and it'll automatically calculate it. Here where you see regular hours, holiday hours, overtime hours, it's adding up all the hours that you're putting in each column. So when you're entering it in, enter in the date that you're working on, you know, 1 January 2000. Uh, when you put in the times, uh, we're using a 24-hour clock. So when you type this one in here for 8 o'clock, it's actually 08 semicolon 00, and it's going to do it correctly. When you're doing uh, midnight or 2400, it's 2400. It'll list it as 0000, but you'll see that the hours change to 16 hours as if it were midnight. When you're starting a shift at midnight, in that case, right down here, you'll see on the third, started at 00.00, and it'll calculate it correctly. Uh, here you see it's showing negative hours because I didn't put it in the end time. So the form will let you know if it's not entered in correctly. It'll tell you the total hours you're claiming for that period. So 12 hours, put it into the correct category. This is not during a regularly scheduled shift. It's not during comp time or not holiday. So the 12 hours there, because he worked from 08 to 2000. And going down on the second and the third, you'll see these were his regularly scheduled shifts from eight o'clock in the morning to midnight, and then again from midnight to 08. So when we do it on the EMAC reimbursement forms, even though you may consider it to be a single day shift, we have to break it on, break it up by exactly what day it falls on. So the time that occurred on the second is listed on a separate line than the time that's occurred on the third. Uh, you'll see on some of these days, uh, like on the 11th, you have regular time from midnight to eight in the morning, and then everything after eight in the morning, which is overtime, is listed on a separate line. Uh, keeping those lines separate allows us to be very specific with which hours during the day are being claimed for what in case we need to further justify it to that state. Uh, down at the bottom, it's going to add up all your total hours for the incident, total hours you're claiming for overtime or for regular, and total hours you're claiming for overtime at the bottom. Uh, those hours there will come up to the top and we'll show you what the reimbursement uh, has worked out to for that employee. For each of these, for the base rate and the benefit rate, those rates will automatically carry over here onto uh, the labor page. So you'll see when you go all the way over to the right, the hourly rate and the hourly benefit rate, the overtime rate and the overtime benefit rate automatically carry over. You don't need to re-enter those. What doesn't carry over is the number of hours per day. These you'll have to go back in and manually input uh, for each employee. You know, here on June or January 2nd, 16 hours of regular time, two hours of overtime. You list them separately on here, and that's where we'll add up at the end of the form for exactly what that employee is being uh, reimbursed for. All that will carry down to the bottom of the page, where it now breaks it out by total regular hours, total overtime hours, total holiday, total comp time, and it breaks up the pay by benefits and fringe benefits for those hours. Uh, EMAC wants to see those separately. So it'll automatically calculate it here on the bottom of the page. Going back to your summary page, which looks really different uh, than what you've been used to in the last couple of years, it will break out and transfer those hours over. So for the one employee we put on there, he's getting $3,400 in regular pay, you know, $1,300 or $13,000 in overtime, it's going to add up these costs for you and transfer it onto the form.
Uh, it does the same for all the travel costs, and I'll go over the travel form in a second. Same for equipment costs. Commodity and other costs are not really uh, used often by the fire service. They are used by other, uh, other agencies. So if you're required to buy uh, equipment and it's authorized in the EMAC contract, uh, sometimes we'll send people to work in uh, IMT positions where they'll have to either rent equipment or rent computers or rent cell phones. Uh, that's where those things are reimbursed. So it's not often used by the fire service, but we had to leave it on here because other agencies are going to be using these forms as well. Uh, this is the R2 form that once everything is complete, uh, your signature authority, usually the chief, but it, again, it depends upon who's on your signature authority form and how your jurisdiction does it, will sign this and send this back to us as the invoice. Uh, this doesn't need to be signed when you first send in your reimbursement packet because some of the numbers are going to change. Yeah, you have your admin or whoever's doing your reimbursement package fill out all of the things on the spreadsheet, scan your documents and send it to us. We'll review the workbook and then we'll send a copy of the workbook back to you uh, to review and sign. So it doesn't have to be signed and scanned up front. The labor page is set up for 20 individuals. Just like we said, everything on this document is set up for 20 individuals. It'll calculate it all the way down to the bottom. Another difference this year that you may uh, see or you may see when you get the form, uh, backfill has its own labor page. Just based on the fact that we've set it up for 20 people, uh, we don't want a giant form that's going to uh, run on for pages and pages and pages. So your backfill employees will actually be on a separate, uh, separate overview page just like this. The names will come from your start page. The rates that are on this will come from the backfill timesheets. Uh, the backfill timesheets are the exact same as the ones that we just looked at for mobilized employees. The only difference is these are preset as backfill employees. Uh, selecting it to backfill will remove the LEOFF2 state contribution as that's only for deployed personnel who are performing services for a non-LEOFF2 contributor. Uh, everything else uh, remains the same. You choose what uh, benefit package, either LEOFF, none, peers, tiers, what have you. You choose Medicare, you choose Social Security, you enter in the rates appropriately. Uh, for backfield employees, you don't need to put in a regular rate if they're not being reimbursed regular. For most of those, you'll just leave them at an overtime rate. Here on the form, you'll put the days they worked, the hours they worked, and then in the backfill column, put the number of hours you're claiming for backfill. That will get added up here under the overtime pay, and then this employee will be compensated. Down at the bottom, you have comment blocks. Here is just as simply as uh, Smith backfilled for Jones on January 1st, backfilled for Douglas on January 2nd. So a little bit of note there, that way when we balance it, we make sure that everyone was covered and that uh, no employees got missed. Uh, so those are the two ITR uh, types of forms. Uh, the ones that are here in blue are for your mobilized employees. The ones here in red are for your backfilled employees, if you have them. Again, uh, if you're not using the forms, you can hide it, but please don't delete it as that will cause some, uh, some of the links to not work with these forms. Uh, mobilized employees are going to go on one overview sheet. Backfilled employees are going to go on a separate overtime, or a separate uh, summary sheet here. That way it keeps the two separate. Adam? Yeah. This is Debbie from SPU. I have a question regarding sure um, a, a staff member that's deployed, but he is um, an exempt employee, but he does work all, all of the hours as the, as the regular staff that goes, the firefighters that go down. How do you do an exempt employee and and say they have four tens as a as a schedule? 
Okay, so for an exempt employee, the first thing we need is either a copy of the contract or the pay policy that shows he's working four tens. Uh, and then we we will just allocate that on the form that those four tens were scheduled days. Uh, so we don't need to know what days he was scheduled because as an exempt employee, he might only be working those four tens and not have specific days. So a copy of the pay policy and then a notation uh, on the bottom of the ITR on this form here, uh, comments, employee is exempt employee, employee works four 10-hour shifts and is overtime for all time after 10 hours or all time after 40 hours, what have you. And then we'll yeah, compensate. He, so if you, if, if you have an exempt employee, they only get paid for the 80 hours um, a week. So they, they don't get overtime. Um, so, or non-exempt, I'm sorry. Um, so um, how, how do you record that, especially when they, they work through the whole deployment? And, and, you know, if they were getting overtime, they would, they would list all the time. But now that they were a, an exempt employee, they only get paid the 80 hours instead of any overtime. So how would you record this on this, this spreadsheet? On this spreadsheet, um, it's interesting. You would record the hours uh, for the total hours worked that day. And then underneath regular or overtime, you'll only list the hours that you're claiming for reimbursement. Putting a comment on the bottom, uh, employee is not exempt and is only eligible for uh, X number of hours in accordance with the attached policy. Now, I know many departments who have employees like this uh, in the past have done an option of a separate contract uh, for the deployment. So you contract the employee to allow them to get overtime during a deployment. Uh, again, that's uh, however the local departments want to handle that. It could be uh, something in your pay policy that allows overtime uh, during uh, outside of state mobilizations. Uh, but if you don't pay the employee for those hours, you don't need to seek reimbursement. You can't seek reimbursement for those hours. Uh, you'd list the total hours worked on the incident, but under the regular column or the under the regular column, you list how many hours you're claiming for reimbursement. Does that make sense? Yes, sir, it does. Thank you. Adam, okay, so, uh, yes, sir. Yeah, okay, so um, that is it. That's a change from what we have done. I mean, we've listed all of the hours on the CTR, but only listed the hours we were seeking reimbursement before, because this that scenario would apply to me. Okay. Um, so you want us to put all of the hours as on this form as well as the seat. Um, is that we, correct? We'd like we'd like this form to match what's on the CTR because the the host state is going to look at those two to balance. So if on the CTR, uh, for your example, if you're only listing the reimbursable hours on the CTR, uh, those are the hours you need to put on the ITR. The two need to match. If you're putting all the hours that were worked on the CTR, but you're only claiming certain ones due to pay practices, uh, then they would get listed on the ITR here, but then you'd break it out underneath regular or OT for which ones you're claiming. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah we, do, we just want the two documents to match. And then we put comments at the bottom as to, you know, why we're not seeking reimbursement for certain hours. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay, uh, travel uh, is only going to look slightly different than the ones we've used in the past. Uh, EMAC has asked us to break it down separately for per diem or by receipt. Uh, so in this example, uh, Dan got $13 for per diem for breakfast, uh, 
fourteen dollars for lunch, twenty three for dinner, <clears throat> and it totals it up uh, to fifty dollars for that day. On the trip back, for whatever reason, decided to do uh, straight reimbursement on the receipt. In that case, you would just specify the receipt number in a separate column. So uh, per diem goes in a separate column from the receipt for each meal. Uh, for lodging, it's going to be the same. You're going to list it off to the right. Uh, we may split this up, even though one employee paid or one employee is listed on the, the lodging receipt. If you had six employees go, we may split up these values and divide up the hotel room by two for two people in the room or by three, uh, just to put it at the GSA level uh, or under if we need to, to justify it to a member state. But we'll do that on our end. Uh, you're just going to list what uh, the reimbursement was for per diem or the reimbursement was uh, based on straight receipt, and it'll automatically calculate it here for you. Uh, because these forms have gotten a little bit longer, we've split this one into two pages. Uh, so everyone on page one, which would be employees one through 10, will be totaled on page one. Employees uh, 11 through 20 will be totaled here. And then all the way at the bottom will be a separate grand total. All of these numbers transfer over to the R2 sheet. So once you fill it out here in one place, it's automatically going to populate it in the correct area on the travel page. For your equipment page, uh, we've added the drop-down menus, like I said. Uh, you'll be able to pick uh, command vehicle daily rate, command vehicle mileage, you know, type one through five, aerial ladder tenders. You'll be able to put all those uh, vehicles on here. And when you choose, it's automatically going to populate the current rate from the MOBE guide. So it, for some reason, you weren't sure what the rate was. You didn't know it was 1862 for a type one. It's going to go ahead and populate it for you, so you don't need to look it up. In the past, we've had you send copies of the MOBE uh, MOB form or the MOB guide with that rate page, we're not going to need that anymore. We know what the rates are. You don't need to print it out, scan it, and send it to us. It's just extra work on your part you don't need to do. Same thing for the GSA rate. Uh, if you tell us on the bottom of the travel form in the notes section, uh, first day we stayed at a hotel in you know, Valencia, California, zip code 90210, you don't need to print up the GSA rate and send it to us. You know, we can pull it up here ourselves, do it on our end, we don't need you to do that work for us. So as long as you list it here on the bottom of the form in the notes for what rate you used, uh, that's one less piece of uh, documentation you need to provide to us. Uh, so equipment, you choose uh, what it's going to be, type one engine at a daily rate. For each day that you used it, it's going to go ahead and calculate the rate for one day. Uh, say on the last day you did a six-hour mission, that one goes in at 0.5, uh, so that only counts as a half day, you know, 940. Uh, whatever the number works out to. And this will calculate it all the way over here to the right. On some of these, if you see where it shows all hashtags, that's just telling you that you're zoomed out too far and it can't see it. You click the button, the plus at the bottom, it'll zoom in, it'll show it right there and it'll print it up correctly. So less than eight hours is gonna go as a half day. Uh, for your command vehicles, you have the option. You'll see on here on the first, uh, on this one, command vehicle, on the first is getting $383 for mileage. You're not claiming the daily rate for that day. You can claim one or the other. So if you were to go ahead and put, you know, one day here or 383 here, uh, we're going to delete the one day here because it's financially better for you to get, you know, 400 and something dollars for this uh, mileage rate than it would be the $50 for the day. So you have the option of selecting the vehicles here on the side. It'll automatically populate the daily or mileage rate that's applicable. What we're going to need for documentation for the vehicles is just the emergency equipment shift ticket. You show us the shift tickets for each day. As long as it has the vehicle number and type on there, 
you know, engine 72 type one, or for the command vehicles, it has the start and stop mileage for the day. Uh, several departments in the past have just sent uh, emergency shift ticket. It might be labeled 7th, 8th, 9th with 173 miles on it. If you can break it out and put mileage on one day, if it occurred on one day, then you'd be eligible for uh, the $50 per day uh, for the vehicle on those other days. Uh, if you can do that, it's more advantageous to the department to get reimbursed for the daily rate on those days rather than combining it all into one day. But if you submit it as one day, we're going to pay it as one day. Uh, I'm going to go over the instruction page and then I'll open it up for uh, questions. I can review anything else on the workbook. Uh, I'm free to stay on here for as long as is necessary. Or if there's someone who has questions later by email or phone, uh, we'll definitely go over this as often as, as you think we need to to make sure it's, it's clear and correct. Uh, the instruction page uh, with a disclaimer at the top that includes email addresses, uh, references, so a link to the current FireMob guide, a current Washington State SAM, the uh, State Administrative and Accounting Manual, a uh, link to our comprehensive emergency management plan that includes some information on reimbursements, a link to the GSA. And then for each of the sections, it'll tell you what forms are needed, what documents are needed uh, to quantify that. So Social Security eligible, documentation needed. Please provide a copy of the employee pay stub, which shows that benefit. Uh, for shift premium, please provide documentation which shows how shift premium is repaid. Pay stub is sufficient if it shows shift premium compensation. Uh, documentation needs to show how shift premium was calculated. So if it says shift premium, and then you know $875 on the pay stub, that's all we need. If it doesn't show shift premium or it shows it in multiple categories on your pay stub, we're gonna need a copy of your pay policy that shows uh, educational incentive, longevity pay, IAF longevity, however you determine it, uh, just send us a copy of your policy that shows how you figured out that shift premium and then it's all compensated. Uh, for your work shifts, like we said earlier, we're gonna need a copy of the shift schedule for all mobilized employees. It can be on a one-page calendar where you just highlight and write in the employee's name for who was on A shift, B shift, C shift. It could be your crew sets or telestaff that shows uh, what days they were regularly scheduled. It's whatever you use at your department to keep track of it. If you don't use one of those systems and you don't have a calendar, we will just need a memo on department letterhead that says, uh, Jones was previously scheduled for shifts on this day, this day, this day. We do not maintain a shift calendar. Uh, for all of these items here where we're asking for documentation, if you don't have it for whatever reason, send us a memorandum on department letterhead explaining what the information was and why it's not available, and that covers it. Either emergency equipment shift tickets were not maintained for this day and this day, they were lost. Or uh, telestaff unavailable for this employee because we changed providers. And you just put that information on a, a letterhead, and that's all we're really going to need to make sure it's validated by California or Oregon. Adam, can I interrupt? This is Gabby. Sure thing, Gabby. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Um, for that work shift, so I, I'm thinking that the time card will suffice. Is that correct? Or It depends. If your time card shows the schedule that they were, that they should have worked, but didn't because of the deployment, uh, that's just fine. For the work shift, we're using this to validate backfill or regular pay versus overtime pay. So we need to see what shifts they would have worked if the deployment didn't occur. Does that make sense? Yes. So yeah, if, if your time card shows those days, then that's perfectly fine. If it doesn't, then uh, you know, a platoon calendar, shift schedule, 
uh, right. Telestaff or, or however you use it. Sure. Okay. Thank you. And then for each of these forms, if if what your department uses doesn't kind of fit with the explanation here, uh-huh. just a phone call to one of us and, and we'll take a look at what you have and let you know if we need more or a memorandum or, or something else. Uh, we usually are able to work with you based on what you use locally with at most just an explanation that we can either write on or type on the bottom. Okay. Thank you. Uh, down here, we have some examples of how to fill out uh, for the first one, this is an employee who had a regular shift on the first and the second, eight to midnight, midnight to eight, uh, how you would depict it on the ITR form for regular time that was not backfilled, how you would depict it for regular and overtime hours on the same day, how you would depict it for backfill time that's being reimbursed. Uh, so just some examples here on the bottom. We also have examples on the labor summary, uh, how to fill out regular and overtime pay and how it's going to match between what's on the ITR and what's on the labor summary, how the two match. Uh, so the first time you're using this workbook, it, it might make sense to have this open in a separate window and go line by line. Or if you've done this before, you might just need to re, uh, refer to it if you have some questions. Uh, for the most part, all of the documentation requirements are listed in red. Uh, that tell you exactly what documents we're going to need for that uh, specific category that's being reimbursed. Um, so the last thing I'll do is just, just go over a couple areas that uh, have caused us to have a delay or to go back and forth uh, with departments for more documentation that slow things down. And then I'm going to open it up to questions and put some email addresses up on the board. Uh, so we, when the ARAPs uh, deploy with you, uh, they maintain copies of the emergency equipment shift tickets and the individual time record or the CTRs, the crew time records. However, a lot of times uh, the departments will head back separately from the ARAPs or ARAPs. So the last day or two of the CTRs, the last day or two of the emergency equipment shift tickets uh, might not be included with what the AREPs have. And at the end of the deployment, uh, Dan or Ben or whoever the AREP is sends us a copy of those so we have them. Uh, so some departments in the past have relied on the AREPs to submit those and have not sent them to us. They may not be complete if the, the deploying elements you know, got on the road and road marched separately. So please send us with all your reimbursement packets a copy of the crew time reports and a copy of the emergency equipment shift tickets uh, as clear and as legible as possible. Uh, if you don't have them or they're lost, we'll check with the AREP to see if they have them. And in worst case, either a memorandum or you can you know, create them on new forms and just tell us that you recreated them. Uh, pay stubs. Uh, not all departments use the same uh, pay uh, software, pay, pay standards. Uh, so if your pay stub doesn't list things specifically, if it doesn't list an hourly rate, uh, you're going to have to explain to us or show us a copy of your policy for how that rate was determined. Because uh, we're going to need to explain that to state finance and California finance and, and Cal OEM or Cal OES if they ask for it. So send a copy of your pay policies if there's anything out of the ordinary that are included there. Please send a copy of the shift calendar uh, for anyone who had a scheduled shift uh, during the deployment. If their shift calendar you send us or your telestaff has uh, different codes or different color codes for you know what the different type of status means, either red or red with slash marks, you know, send us a copy of the key or the the the, the legend that shows us what those things mean on the telestaff. Uh, myself and Alicia were getting pretty good at deciphering them just over the past two years, but with you know 80 or 100 different departments. Every department does things a little bit differently. If you have a, a cheat card or a status list of what those things mean on your telestaff or your crew sense, you know, send that along. And that'll just save us from having to ask questions. 
Um, when you send the emails to us uh, for your reimbursements, uh, please label it with the EMAC mission number, you know, EMAC 10080 Kirkland reimbursement. And that way, when we get the emails, we'll know exactly what mission it's coming to, and we'll know exactly where to save the documents so that we don't uh, mix them up on our end, which does happen, especially when they come in labeled as you know, glass fire or LNU fire or uh, some things get mixed up on our end. So we want to save the trouble, uh, label them all with the EMAC number, and then we'll make sure when they get to us, uh, they get assigned appropriately. I'm going to pull back up the, the PowerPoint again. Give me one second while I pull it up. All right, can everyone see the PowerPoint again? Yes. All right, let me go to the end with uh, some of our email and information. And we will send out a copy of this uh, PowerPoint uh, that you can send out along with this video, or uh, you can save for your, your staff if they have any questions. So on here on the slides, uh, we've got email addresses for Mark, Alicia, and myself. When we send out the form and we send out the uh, slides this afternoon, we're also going to include a new email address that our IT has just given us this morning, emac, E-M-A-C, at mil.wa.gov. Uh, when you send an email uh, for any questions about EMAC or any questions about reimbursement or mobilization, you know, send it to all of us, but also please include EMAC, emac at mil.wa.gov. That one will go to all of us uh, as a double uh, to make sure that nothing gets missed. Because a lot of times, especially over the last year during uh, COVID with all of our work with FEMA, there may be times when one or two of us are out of the office for a week or two at a time. And if you're sending reimbursements just to one person on this list, uh, it may not get looked at in a timely manner. Uh, so try to send them, CC them to all three of us. And then also to emac at mil.wa.gov. That'll ensure that uh, everything gets looked at as fast as you send it and that uh, there'll be no questions with uh, where things were sent to. Uh, so with that, I'm going to open it up for any more questions. And uh, I will say I will follow up uh, with Mark and Dan directly about Portal to Portal and push out the notes on that to make sure uh, everyone understands what the state's position is and why uh, on that to make sure we're all clear going into the next season. So uh, please open it up for any questions. So, um, Adam? Yes, sir. Uh, so... Uh, to make it easier, I'm just wondering uh, on both both ends whether we would continue to use it or, or not. So uh, I'll, I'll give you the example of what I'm trying to uh, relay here. Uh, when the AREP is, uh, serves as the time unit for the deployed Washington resources. So uh, their CTRs, the copy of the CTR goes to the AREP. The AREP transfers that information to a 288 and 286 for their equipment and their personnel time. That then is confirmed with the um, strike teams or the individuals prior to their demobilization or during the demobilization process, which becomes the final uh, document uh, for their time on the incident. Would it be um, and then your, the AREP will then put in a doc box uh, a copy of the C individual CTRs uh, just for backup purposes uh, and provide that to EMD. Would it, would it be, it would be easier 
if if the agencies only had to submit the 286 and the 288 rather than having to scan all those uh, CTRs in that sometimes are legible, sometimes aren't, uh, because that information has been transferred to the 288, 286 as the official time record. Would it would that suffice? Would that be all right? Uh, with our with our reimbursements that we've gone back and forth with uh, California and Oregon on, they also want to see a copy of the emergency equipment shift ticket and the CTR. So in addition uh, to the forms, they want to see those as well. Uh, if we get them from the ARAP uh, directly rather than each department having to scan them, that's fine. Uh, we just need to make sure that they're complete to include the last day for DMO. Um, so w whatever is easier on your end, we're just going to need those when we submit the reimbursement packets. Uh, if they're not included with the ARAP, we can seek them directly from the department or if departments have them and scan them, uh, whichever way you want to do it. But we will need those for the final reimbursement. We need to have both sets. Okay. Adam, this is Debbie again. I have a yes. question regarding um, support for uh, labor charges. We don't have timesheets per se, it's all digital. So we are able to download this stuff from our accounting system, which has that direct link to the, the payroll. Is that, um, is that, would that suffice for your needs for support? I mean, it breaks down between uh, FICA and Medicare and all of that and the days worked? Yes, if it's just a printout from your finance, that's perfectly fine as long as it uh, lists those things separately for uh, FICA, Medicare, or what have you. And uh, yeah, that, that's perfectly fine for us. It doesn't have to be an actual timesheet or an actual pay stub. If it's a printout from your finance and it, it has all the information, that's perfectly fine. Great, thank you. I'm not hearing any more questions, uh, but with all those email addresses that you see on the screen and the emac at mill.wa.gov, if there's a question you think of later or something doesn't make sense or you want to uh, share with us a, a form from your finance or from your department just to make sure it, it's what we need, uh, by all means, please feel free to reach out to us. Uh, I'd rather answer these questions now than, than when we're under the gun to try to get reimbursements done. Uh, so if there's no further questions, I appreciate you giving me this much time. Uh, sorry, I was long winded, but I hope that you got some good value out of it. Well, Adam, on, uh, you know, from my perspective, on behalf of the region, I, I really appreciate you giving the time and explanation today. And if, is it possible to forward your PowerPoint out? Yep. This afternoon, we're going to send out the, the new form and this PowerPoint. And I believe uh, Anna Grimes said she uh, audio tape or videotaped this. So uh, you can spread that out to anybody who needs to see it or reach out to us directly and I'll get a copy out from her as well. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. All right, uh, Adam, Alicia, thank you so much. We appreciate your guys' time. I just want to put one more opportunity out there. <coughs> this is our uh, this is our chance to ask questions before we uh, before we let them go back to their real jobs. Is there any other questions for the on EMAC or EMAC paperwork? Okay, well, with that, thank you, everybody. Um, Chief Smith, thank you so much for arranging uh, the presentation for us. And Adam, thank you. And uh, everybody have a good day and stay cool and hydrated over the weekend. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Thank you.